Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm happy to have my friend, Neil Cataldi. Neil is the founder of Blueprint Capital. Neil, how's it going? Very good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. Let me start uh, the podcast the way I do every podcast, and that's by pitching you, my guest. Uh, Neil's one of the sharpest microcap investors I know. I think we've been chatting on and off for almost 10 years at this point, which that's a long time. You know, I I was kind of fresh out of college at that point. So look, I think listeners are going to, I know you dive deep into these quirky microcap ideas. Uh, I think it's going to shine through on this podcast. And I think listeners are really going to enjoy it. So uh, that out the way, let's turn to the company we're going to discuss. I'll give a disclaimer up front. This is a microcap, uh, roughly $200 million market cap. It's uh, insiders own a lot of it, so the float's a lot lower than that. Neil has a position in the stock, so everyone should just remember, nothing on here is investing advice. Just keep all of that in mind. And with that out the way, uh, the company is Sonera MedTech. The ticker is SMTI. And Neil, I'll toss it over to you. Tell us all about it. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, so... Uh, I'll start off. Uh, a well-respected um, investor I know recently used the term iceberg stock to describe Sonera. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. On the surface, there doesn't really appear to be very much yet, but underneath all of the pieces are coming together. This is what I like about Microcap. Um, the company until recently has been pretty quiet and you know, perhaps purposefully has not put much news out. Um, but you know, that's the advantage, right? In microcap, you do the work and you, uh, you, you sort of discover these things before other people do. Um, so love that it's an iceberg stock. Um, and two, I think when you find a company that's about to change that posture, um, it's a catalyst for audience growing and for that discovery kind of mechanism to, to, uh, expand. So that being said, um, you know, who's Sonera? I'll, I'll kind of give a quick summary and then, you know, I'm sure we're going to we're going to dive deep. But uh, Sonera is a med tech company. They're in the early innings of building a comprehensive platform to disrupt the wound care industry. Uh, they're focused on commercializing technologies uh, to improve clinical outcomes and reduce healthcare expenditures in the chronic and surgical wound care markets. Ron Nixon is the chairman. He owns nearly 50% of the company, Um, so there's great alignment of interest there. Ron has assembled a world-class team, and their goal really is to um, redefine wound care diagnosis and treatment across multiple care settings. The company grew 30% in 2020 um, with only one product, which is called Celerate RX. Um, surgeons use that product because uh, simply it works. Um, it helps people heal faster and it reduces complications. Um, the alternative is not really using a product at all. Um, so it, there's an interesting opportunity there. We'll get in more into that later. Um, the number of hospitals approved to purchase Celerate um, has more than doubled in the past six months from 291 in 2020 to over 750 today. And that's a that's a key forward-looking indicator that um, the company had never disclosed before until about two months ago um, when they did a capital raise. And I think um, because of that, you know, it's pretty easy to say that the growth in this product should accelerate significantly this year. Um, they've got additional products launching later this year as well as a wound and skin virtual uh, telemed platform that's coming out by year end. Um, so 
an interesting portfolio developing. Uh, the people who execute the vision are all uh, really experienced individuals who have a history with much larger companies in the space. And I think they've been really careful about how they've construct, constructed um, the, the talent and the senior leadership team. So I view this as um, one product with a really predictable path forward that can have explosive growth combined with a portfolio of secondary products that um, currently are more unpredictable to investors um, in, their ability, in their ability to be modeled, but all have really large opportunities at scale that can be achieved in the future and you know, perhaps relatively near future. Um, Sonera is currently producing uh, an approximate $20 million run rate. Um, they have 90% gross margins. And as I said, uh, almost all of that is from the single product. Uh, they raised 30 million in the first quarter of this year, um, which has created the opportunity um, from a valuation perspective because the stock's down about 40% from its highs in January. Um, and they intend to use the proceeds to expand Salesforce partnerships. Um, so it's it's going to be an interesting year as um, as this one product really expands and as the and as the the portfolio starts to to kick in with the new products. Perfect. Can, yeah. let, me, let me just jump in here with some questions that jump out to me. So yeah. I, I think the first, uh, and this is something I, I, maybe I just missed it. You know, I try to do work for the podcast, but you can't cover everything. But the number of hospitals uh, doubled. I think you said from about 250, the number of hospitals approved to purchase their product doubled from about 250 to over 700 right now, if I remember correctly. Uh, how does, like... We'll talk later about the Salesforce. I know they have an outsourced Salesforce, but how do they get that doubling of hospitals? I mean, is it literally just going to a group purchasing organization and having a group purchasing organization that's in charge of 100 hospitals say, okay, you're good? Or do they are their Salesforce actually going hospital to hospital and saying, hey, um, this product is great. There's nothing like it on the market. Get us approved. And that's what's happening. Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and, and they haven't, clarified that just to be clear, you know, the company, I mean, look, you may ask me questions that I don't know on this podcast. Um, I think I know a lot, but, but they have not put themselves out there um, as much as, you know, the traditional company. Um, my, my intuition is that in order to go from 291 to 750, okay, you, you're not going onesie twosie, right. On these yeah. approvals. So um, so you're, you're trying to hook the bigger fish and you're landing, like you said, a group purchasing order, or you're landing an integrated delivery network. They're called IDNs. Um, the IDNs are typically regional. Um, they offer healthcare services, insurance plans. And, uh, what's interesting about their model is that it gives them negotiating power with suppliers like Sonera. When Sonera lands an IDN, you know, if they have, I mean, they get, they should in theory get instant volume and scale. So I ask myself again, how did they do this? Um, they haven't said it, but like th they, they must have landed some groups or IDNs. The largest, the largest IDNs in the United States right now are HCA Healthcare, um, Ascension Health, Common Spirit, Community Health. These are like top five. HCA has like 200 hospitals. The other ones are, you know, a hundred plus. So um, so I think it's clear something has really changed favorably for them. Um, and, and that's why, 
you know, this predictable aspect of what Celerate may do this year is really compelling to me because um, it's more than doubled. So in theory, I mean, if these guys don't approve unless they want to buy, then you should be seeing a pretty interesting uptick. No, um, that, that, that was my guess too. I, I, I covered uh, healthcare in a, in a prior life and actually uh, some of the slot, you know, for viewers, if you go look at their slide deck, some of the slides, it's towards the back of their deck. They've got a lot of the uh, the wound care pictures, and it was giving me really ugly flashbacks to when I covered healthcare. And you have to look at these diabetic ulcers and pressure wounds and stuff. They are not pretty to look at, and the deck was giving me some bad flashbacks. But no, that was my under- that was my guess as well. I was guessing they were getting onto IDNs, but I was more wondering, like, you know. If you're getting onto IDN, are you literally just going to the IDN and they're checking a box and then you have to go to each individual hospital? Or was it all these hospitals are requesting, you know, there's surgeons who are hearing great things about the wound care products here and they're saying to their IDN, we need this, we need you to approve this, we're desperate to get this product. And then they approve it in like kind of the sales blow down, if that makes sense. That that's more my understanding of it is that they typically have a surgeon who's a champion of it and is advocating for it. And then they go in and, and, and it gets approved. Um, you know, but I don't know if we're jumping ahead, but let's run through the numbers a little bit though. Cause it's interesting. So celery, um, 94% of their revenue last year. Um, so if you look at what they did in the fourth quarter, um, that means they were likely doing like four and a half million, um, puts them at an $18 million annual run rate on celery. The average selling price is seven hundred dollars, um, and they sold it into two hundred ninety-one hospitals. So it's really rough math, but let's go down the rabbit hole because sometimes it's fun. Um, maybe fifteen thousand per revenue, uh, fifteen thousand dollars of revenue per hospital in the fourth quarter. Maybe fifty thousand like during the whole year. If that's true, you know, you just apply simple math. We're talking about like seventy procedures per hospital. You know, one every five days. I mean, it, it, like, uh, you know, there's 15 million surgeries in the U.S. each year. Um, so I, I think what that kind of tells me is um, the penetration rates rate is really low, even yeah. in the hospitals they're selling into. Um, and of those 15 million surgeries, you've got two to four percent have site infection or complications. Um, and that's really where the value add is with Celerate is that, you um, you know, it, it, in theory, it, it makes those, it, it removes the risk of a complication or a site infection. Um, and that's why people use it. So, yeah. And yeah. then, so right now, uh, this product, I, I'd actually focus more on their wound care product when I was looking at them, but it sounds like the, this product is actually the key one. So right now for uh, post-op preventing, uh, uh, preventing infection, there's no product like this product. Like if I was a surgeon and I was at one of the, you know, thousands of hospitals that don't have access to this on their buying list, what would I use post-op or during the op to prevent an infection on a, a patient? Uh, well, well, what I've learned, what I've been told is that they're not really, typically they're not really competing against another product. It's, mm-hmm. it's just that nothing's really being used, but, but maybe let's take a, take a step back for one second and I'll just explain what Celerate is. Um, so, so the product is called Celerate RX. Um, collagen is uh, understanding what collagen in is really is really important here. So collagen is important in the phases of wound healing. Um, it promotes the formation of new tissue and enables the migration of cells like across the tissue, which closes a wound. Um, so it's a critical role in the structure function of of the body's cells. Native collagen is found 
in our bodies, animals, humans, um, and it's produced, you know, as the first step in the healing process. Um, Celerate is, is a surgical activated collagen. Um, so it's used in procedures and it promotes healing. Like I said, it reduces the risk. It's primarily used in operative cases um, where patients might have trouble healing due to other underlying health conditions and comorbid- comorbidities. Um, surgeons, you know, they're using this to complement that, the, the natural process. So I think when you talk about like, well, what are they using? You know, if you had a surgery, you, you might, they might be confident that you don't necessarily need it. Right. But for other people that are higher risk, you know, it, they definitely want something. Um, so this sort of feeds into like the improved patient outcome, um, how they achieve that by helping the body heal naturally without the infection. Um, and then reducing the likelihood, um, such as like a reoperate reoperation along, you know, longer hospitalization, yep, yep. extended rehabs. These are really costly, um, you know, events that can sort of cascade right from problems. And that's where the key value prop comes in. Um, there was a study in 2017 where they used Celerate in 102 consecutive neurosurgery cases. And they found no cases of reinfection or complication um, relative to neurosurgery infection rates, which sometimes range as high as like 24% for uh, cranioplasty and 6% for spine. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, hundred cases isn't a huge sample size in that instance, but um, you know, I mean, the, if the base rate is somewhere between 10 to 20%, a hundred, a hundred cases and no infections that I, I, I think that's pretty sig- statistically significant. I'd have to bust out Excel and brush up on my statistic classes, but that, that seems pretty good. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, so it's, it's very interesting. Um, and I think the hospital, uh, you know, expansion is a really, is, is a really telling sign of what's maybe to come there. Um, can we, can we take a step back though? And can I talk about, um, can I talk a little bit about management for a minute? Because I think, look, this is a micro cap and you know, when you're, when you're betting on a charter or a cable company, that's huge, like management matters, but at least the cable assets are there when you're betting on a $200 million dollar, uh, med tech company that's trying to penetrate 500 hospitals in one year, management probably matters a little bit more. So please, management, let's talk. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, and the reason I go back to that is that I think this story really starts at the top. Um, and so we mentioned Ron Nixon, he's the chairman. He owns nearly 50% of the company. Yep. He's a really interesting um, individual. And I kind of want to tell his story because I think his story um, you know, what I've learned over the years is that like sort of to the point you're just making is that the jockey is really important. You need the right people at the top. You need the right alignment of interest where they own stock, have incentive. Um, and I think, you know, this really checks a lot of those boxes. So um, Ron is uh, has a background in engineering. He graduated from the University of Texas um, in Austin and, and he got into the investment business a long time ago. He started a firm called the Catalyst Group um, in 1990, which is a mid-sized private equity firm today. Um, Ron's led over 200 separate transactions over the last 30 years. They've got eight limited partnerships. 
Um, and, and I think Catalyst is interesting because they're a lot like investors I know, probably you, um, in that they want to form partnerships with management. They see companies that serve as platforms for growth. Um, and they spend a lot of time on the strategy and operation of their portfolio companies. And that's really how like Scenaric comes into play here. Ron and Ron and his involvement in wound care begins 20 years ago. Uh, Catalyst invested $10 million into the LHC group, um, which today is one of the leading home health companies in the United States. And one of the things when I was looking, he's on the board of LHC and I I pulled up the stock chart. I was like, Ooh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So Ron, so, so Ron, you know, Ron with Catalyst, they put 10 million in, um, Ron's been on the board of LHC group, which it's a six and a half billion market cap company today. Um, Ron's been on the board for 20 years and, um, that company went public in 2005. And like you said, the chart's been great. Um, so the genesis of Scenario really starts with like Ron's experience with LHC. And that's what, that's what like planted the seeds for, for his involvement in Scenario. So over the years with LHC, he saw like all the various aspects of what goes on in home health. Um, and as he puts it, there's five primary drivers in the, in the post-acute sector. So there's diabetes, there's um, CHF, which is congestive heart failure, there's COPD, chronic um, obstructive pulmonary disease, and then mobility issues and hypertension. Um, acute, I think we can define acute care as, as, as level of healthcare where a patient is treated for something um, brief but severe, right? The opposite being primary care where, you know, that just covers more routine medical conditions. Um, so those five categories I mentioned, they make up 80% of the cost in post-acute. And, um, and, and wound care falls primarily under the diabetes category. And that's where, like you said earlier, you saw these pictures of like foot ulcers and open sores. That, that's very common. It's common in over 15% of diabetic patients. So um, the two payers in the space, CMS, think Medicare Advantage um, plans and larger managed care companies like um, you know, any big insurer, um, they don't really have a very good value proposition and they're all doing it the same way, fee for service. Ron thinks that um, the value proposition needs to change. And, and this is really what led him to develop Sonera and, and the comprehensive strategy that, that they're trying to put together. Um, Catalyst, and I know you're going to ask this question, you know, because we were chatting earlier about it. So Catalyst has also invested in a company called Rochelle Industries. And Rochelle has a, a longstanding history developing um, proprietary products in a variety of industries. Their core innovation was in the eye care business. Um, and it, it's really quite interesting because the founders developed uh, a polymer that became the first gas permeable contact lens. Um, they sold that to Bosch and Loam, and that's generated like billions of dollars. And then after that, they started studying biofilm conditions in wound care, and they developed um, polymers that could be barriers for skin. Their next big invention was a product that they licensed to 3M, um, which became the, the Cavalon liquid bandage uh, product line. So, um, so this, this Rochelle group is really interesting that Ron's also involved with. And 
um, the investment that Catalyst and Ron made into Brashal basically expanded Sonara's movement into proprietary products um, because Sonara has, has a relationship with, with Rochelle. So I think Ron's intention to um, disrupt wound care kind of begins with Rochelle relationship, the new products they've been developing. They're essentially like the R&D, right, in this case. Um, and, and, you know, if you talk to him, he would say that they're a, in a, a key component to the overall strategy here. Um, and I think the relationship's really been developed at great lengths to, to provide for their exclusivity so that others can't, you know, participate. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, let, let me just, dive in with a few questions here. First, Ron, yeah. did I, did I hear he went to the university of Texas? Uh, he went to university of Texas at Austin. Yeah. Do I remember you went to University of Texas? No. <laughs> oh, I thought. Damn. Okay. Well, then, then you 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 jumped off. Uh, you jumped off that one. But yeah. let, that would have been a good twist, though. Yeah, I, I was like, this yeah. guy's just supporting Longhorns. I, I actually love the Longhorns. I went to. I, I've been to Austin a few times. Uh, love yeah. it down there. But yeah. let, let me ask a more serious question. So yeah. you've you've already started because I I think one of the key risks here is when you read the related party, uh, the related parties in the 10 K and you go through the proxy, there's Rochelle on one side where I, I get it, you know, it's outsourced R and D they're, they're getting a lot of the products from Rochelle, but it, it was striking me and they, they pay them and everything, but it was striking me as a little bit weird, right? Like, Hey, uh, you've got Ron controls SMTI, Ron controls Rochelle. And if SMTI owned their sales force, it would make a little bit more sense to me that, okay, you've got, you know, you've got the uh, the research over here and the sales force over here. But what didn't make sense to me was SMTI sales force seems to be outsourced as well. So it's like, you've got Rochelle developing and selling the products to SMTI, who then gives them to the outsourced sales force who goes and sells them and almost makes them like a middleman. And, and I kind of wondered like, why doesn't Rochelle just go directly to the outsourced sales force and cut out this middleman, if that makes sense? So, you know, like, why is SMTI a part of this ecosystem? Yeah, I don't think that's entirely true um, in terms of the sales force, that is. Um, so, all right. So, so in terms of the related party transactions, uh, they're all arm's length away, if you ask me. I mean, you you know, and if you look into them, I think the terms are often actually favorable to Sonera. I do so, not disagree with that. I do yeah. not disagree with that at all. Right. So, so for example, um, Catalyst um, converted con some of their convertible debt early on into Sonera stock. So they've foregone, you know, future uh, potential accumulated interest, right, on the, on the convertible. Um, Ron also invested over $8 million of his own money into, into the company. Um, so I think, you know, if he was trying to unstructure anything, if he was trying to structure anything unfair, um, he wouldn't be putting his money into SMTI, right? Um, so, you know, and then when I, like I said, when I look at the terms, I see that, um, to me at least, they 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 appear fairly cheap. So, in terms of the relationship, though, um, because we we actually got this question on Twitter when you when you posted when yep. you, when you posted a tweet. So, uh, somebody was asking the thoughts on owning the IP versus not owning the IP. Um, and I think, you know, my response to that is the, the close relationship with Rochelle enables them to have this strong pipeline of products without having to pay the upfront cost for the R&D, obviously. The exclusive arra exclusivity arrangements, I think, are friendly. And the products are world-class, given what Rochelle's already proven. Um, they've aligned with Rochelle. 
They also have uh, a new partner as of a few months ago with Cook Biotech, yep. um, which is a very similar relationship. Um, and, you know, I feel pretty strongly that there's going to be more strategic relationships around more products in the future. So th this is their model. And I guess the question I can ask myself is, would I prefer them to spend millions of dollars on products that may or may not work to do the R&D? Or would I rather than form these value-add relationships, which create a funnel of really compelling you know, ready to be commercialized products without that capital risk around the R&D. I'll, I'll take the latter in this instance, but I'll take the latter because um, they've already proven that they can they can build the relationships, right? Having these, these two really, these big ones. Um, and what I think, I think you have a question, but what I think, before I let you ask a question, go ahead, go ahead, they're go ahead. At, I think they're actively choosing not to own a capital intensive business with, you know, FDA oversight. I think they're choosing a distribution, a distribution business with a high moat. And once it's built, it's, it's highly desirable, it's scalable. And then they have more leverage with other IP companies like Rochelle. So for me, I mean, like the ecosystem's huge. They're choosing one end of it where the products have already gone through the approval process, which presents a lot of risk. And now they just need to focus on that sort of glass mile distribution. Um, you know, I think if you want to do both, you need a lot of scale. I mean, you, you need extraordinary scale to be um, at that level where, you know, a lot of multi-billion dollar companies are. In some ways, and it gets a bad rep now, but it reminds me of Valiant in the early days. And obviously in the later days, there was fraud and there was all sorts of other stuff, right? So, but mm -hmm. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking the early days where they actually had a very good insight, right? The insight was, hey, it, all these pharma companies are spending billions on R&D. Why don't we do something different, right? Why don't we go buy already approved drugs and our specialty will be in selling, distributing and pricing already approved drugs. So we're going to wait for the drug to be approved. We'll go buy it and then we'll have relationships with physicians. And again, I know you say Valiant and people's hair stand up, but in the beginning, it actually was a good model and it actually did extremely well. And then it did really well for a while because there was a lot of other shenanigans going on. But it reminds me of that, right? Like, we're we're actually going to wait for the products to get approved. We're going to ours. I think their specialty might almost be, hey, we're going to develop relationships with these people after their products approved, license them, and then we've got the distribution. Am, am I kind of saying that right? Or did the mere mention of Valiant just raise some uh, raise some hairs on the back of your neck? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's certainly not Valiant, but uh, but but I think the model. I think your point on the model is exactly what they're doing. I mean, it's it's they don't want to do that work. They want to focus on the distribution piece of it. And I think, you know, the view is that the portfolio as a whole, as a whole being comprehensive is what's really going to give them leverage down the line. Um, I, so look, you can already see it, right? Like, hey, we're approved in 700 hospitals to sell this one thing. It's probably pretty easy to go buy another product. And I don't know if you're automatically approved in 700 hospitals, but if you've already got that relationship, it's probably not too hard to, you know, go and get your next product approved in 700 things. What right. So, go ahead. If, yeah, I just I want to finish the one other yep. point that you made though, because you're talking about the the, the sales force and um, oh, great, yes, please. Yeah, and in how you know, um, I guess you were devaluing it a little bit, but um, but um, the the team that Ron has put into place here is fascinating, and and you know they use 1099 reps. Okay, so so a lot of companies do. Okay, in this space. Um, but the, the senior leadership team around Ron is fantastic. It is yep. an all-star cast of people. So 
when he came into the company um, a few years back, there were two individuals there already, Michael Carmina, Zach Fleming. Both of these individuals came from Smith and Nephew. Um, and Smith and Nephew is a $17 billion uh, market cap med device company. They're, they're huge in the wound care space. Um, Michael and Zach both were there. Um, they were part of the wound care division. And they actually previously worked for HealthPoint, which was acquired by Smith and Nephew. This is all a little intertwined, so it's important. And I'll try and kind of unwind no, please, it for everybody. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So when Ron came in, he had these two individuals that had worked as a team already at HealthPoint. They'd worked at Smith and Nephew. Um, and th- you know, the way it's sort of told or the way I piece it together is that these two started telling everybody that they worked with at those other companies that what's what Sonera was trying to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, all these people started coming to Sonera. So it's probably not a coincidence that Sonera is located five miles from Smith and Nephew in Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> and 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 today, I think there's over 18 employees have come from either Smith and Nephew or HealthPoint. Right. So you've got the CFO, Michael McNeil. He spent six years at Smith and Nephew, 13 at HealthPoint before that. You've got Sean Bowman, who um, runs the wound division. He built two successful teams um, at a company called WellSense and then was national sales director at Smith and Nephew. You got Zach Fleming, who I mentioned. He's he runs the sur- uh, the surgical division. He had 14 years at HealthPoint, Smith and Nephew. Right. I mean, you can see the trend here. Um, and then interestingly, not a Smith and nephew guy, but, um, you know, we haven't gotten to this yet, but the telemedicine platform. Yeah. I was um, going to go there next. Yeah. yeah. So they hired Chris Morrison, who Chris Morrison was the former CEO of a company called Nautilus healthcare group. He was there for 12 years. That company was hired, was acquired by Heologics. Um, and then Chris went on to form this group called M group, um, they're a physician-owned, physician-led, like multi-specialty wound care group. Um, and the two of those companies um, announced a, a, an exclusive affiliation last year where Sonara is going to provide certain management services. M Group provides the clinical services around um, uh, both in-person and via telehealth. So, you know, that's just a sample of, of like the senior team. Um each of these divisions, the surgical division, which sells Celerate, has 17 regional reps, okay, that each focus on like a geographic area, like a state. Um, when they raise the money, uh, part of the intent around the raise is to go from covering, I think it's 18 states today, to all 50. So when we talk about the 291, I mean, they haven't even, they're, they're primarily, I think, down south. Um, they haven't really broadened out to the whole country yet. Um, so I think that's interesting. And then, and then, you know, the wound care side, which we haven't gotten into, um, they have five regional reps. So the regional reps are out there, you know, hunting, getting these hospitals on board. Um, they have surgeons who are championing and being advocates on the ground. And then, um, you know, once that happens and the approval process goes through, then, you know, the 1099 reps kind of come into play a little bit. Um, and I've talked to people about 1099 reps and, and I think it's hit or miss, right? Because um, these people have like uh, 
a whole bag full of products they can sell. So yep. why, why are they selling Stellarate when they could sell, you know, X, Y, or Z, right? Um, That's a question I had for you. Yeah, yeah. And 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 frankly, I, I mean, it's, 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 we'll see, right? Um, what's, what's been said is that there's over 80 groups supporting the regional reps. Um, and they estimate that they really have like 200 that, um, I would say are, are, are actively engaged. Um, but, but I think, you know, even to some extent they would say it might be, it might be tough to know that for sure. So I view the 1099 piece as being a bit of a wild card. Um, but I think, you know, again, like salary, it's pretty predictable. I think, you know, we established that it's being used in 291. We established it's being used, but not being used a lot. Um, clearly there's a reason they're using it. Um, it's growing. It grew really well last year during COVID, right? When, when procedures were down and people weren't, you know, having the surgeries that they were normally having. Um, so I think what we'll see this year is I think we'll see that, um, you know, you'll get, you'll get further penetration. I think you'll get expansion into the new hospitals. I think, I think the new, I think the 750 number probably isn't 750 anymore. I think it's probably considerably higher than that maybe as well. Um, Let me ask you a question on the, on the growth, right? So obviously uh, the big, the big boy growth comes from going from 200 hospitals to 700 to who knows how many hospitals there are in the US. I'm sure it's out there. I just don't know off the top of my head. I think it's over 3000, but Wait, what was the question? How many hospitals there are? No, 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 no. That, that was not the question. I, I was kind of just talking to myself. I can ramble. Oh, okay. All right. uh, my, my question is, you know, that's where the big growth is. But have you seen anything or have they put anything out on like, you know, you sell you sell it into Andrew Walker's hospital and the first year uh, Andrew Walker's hospital uses uh, 50 units of it, right? And then the next year, the surgeons are loving the product so much that we use 150 or 200 or 300 or whatever. Have they, have they shown anything on, Hey, you know, like what's our sales growth within a hospital? Cause I think that could be, I don't know if they have, but that could be such a powerful indicator. Like if, as the hospital gets used to the product, the usage really goes up, that really speaks to the value. Have they done anything on that? Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay. No, that, that's, fine. Yeah. that's fine. I mean, I actually asked them recently, I asked them recently what um, the number was last year. Um, because I thought it would be interesting to compare, you know, th- this, th- so the 291 number is new. They had never disclosed that before until the raise in February. Um, and at the same time, they disclosed that the 291 had become 750. Yep. So, so we have no, we have no baseline really. Um, and what I had asked for uh, was what that number was a year ago to see how they got to 291 gotcha. and, then, yep. and then bring it back. Um, I, I, you know, again, like they're pretty careful and with how they disclose things. And I think they may disclose that number, but they have not at, at, at this time. Yeah. I'm basically looking for the, the net revenue retention of this product, if that makes sense. Let, let's yeah. go to a different one. Yeah. I, I think at the beginning, you mentioned that you thought this was an iceberg stock, right? Whereas you dug in, you find more. And I think this might be part of it or this might not, but let's discuss their goals for uh, the, the telehealth medicine for a second, because this was another one that was really interesting to me, but I was also a little surprised by the company pursuing this opportunity. Yeah, so um, so I, I think the telemed platform is really compelling. I mean, first of all, up until February, this company had no balance sheet. So everything that they've done to piece these things together has been done really shoestring, um, you know, making it work somehow. Um, this raise in February was really like kind of the coming out party for the company. Um, so in June of last year, they formed a subsidiary it's called United Wound and Skin Solutions. 
Um, this sub holds certain investments and operations that that they've built around this idea of virtual console. Um, and, you know, I, I actually think they're going to report it separately. So it'd be pretty interesting once it launches to, to see, you know, I find a lot of times these microcaps like to hide the, the startup, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to show It's not just microcaps. It's not just microcaps. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. So there's, there's a number of pieces here. Well, I'll, I'll try and walk you through it. Um, they made an initial investment in a company called Wounderm in 2020. Wounderm, um, uh, they wanted to help them develop um, an imagery and data sharing platform. Um, and then in January of this year, they acquired the remaining interest in Wunderm. Um, so Wunderm is a software system that uh, combines documentation functionality of wound and dermatology EMRs with like HIPAA protocols. Um, the platform essentially allows for interoperability with um, client-facing EMRs and reduces duplicate documentation. So if you're going to do something in telemed today, you know, you have to have some piece that like ties all the medical records together. Um, and that's basically what Wounderm is going to do. It allows for images to be imported from third-party um, wound tool applications, you know, Apple and Android-based apps. Um, it's really, I think, an integral part of uh, of the platform and one that's going to, you know, enable all this integration. Because like I said, without the integration, nobody's going to want to use it. Um, it would just be too, it would be too troublesome. So the second piece um, that they've disclosed is a relationship with a company called Directerm, who is actually a separate telemed company. Um, they have an exclusive network of dermatologists and licensed across 23 states. Um, they're expanding across the whole country this year. Um, and that's sort of the piece that I think is gonna give them access to, uh, to, to patients, right? Through, through what Directerm is doing. Um, they made a half a million dollar investment in that company in July. Um, and they've got exclusive rights to utilize their tech in all acute and post-acute settings. So that's like skilled nursing facilities, home health, wound clinics. Um, they've got the relationship with M Group, which I we talked about Chris Morrison for a minute. So he's leading this whole thing. Um, and they've got this, this agreement with M Group. M Group um, has active medical licenses in over 40 states. Um, and that also is going to give them some access to like in-person um, and telehealth related like clinical services with people. Um, and then fourthly, Really importantly, they have an exclusive um, affiliation investment with a company called Precision Healing. So they invested 1.2 million last year into Precision, um, which is, I think it gives them between 12 and 16% of that company based on certain milestones. Um, Precision has developed an imaging device and a smart pad that is going to be commercially available this year that will integrate into the EMR and it's basically a diagnostic tool that can assess a patient's wound and skin condition. Um, it, it quantifies like biochemical markers. It determines the trajectory of a wound condition. So whether it's healing, how fast it's healing, um, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Precision I, healing, one last thought on that. Ask, okay. Yeah. yeah, so precision healing was formed by um, executives at a company called Lumicell, which is a privately held 
leader in the field of image guided cancer surgery. And the CEO of Precision Healing is also, he's the CSO of Lumicell. He also created a company previously called T2 Biosystems, which is a couple hundred million dollar market cap of its own today. Um, and the other individual who leads the effort, David Strassfeld, um, he was the third employee at Lumicell. So, you know, these guys, again, I mean, we're talking about people like you've been around microcap. So a lot of times in microcap, I feel like you've got people that are really good at one thing, but they don't sort of have the whole, you know, set of tools, right? Every person that this company, um, you know, engages with is somebody that has a history of success and somebody that has already done it before. And to me, like being an avid microcap investor, I mean, it's just, you just don't see this type of team come together. Um, doesn't mean they're going to be able to pull it off, but it certainly increases the likelihood that they can. Um, so anyway, all right. So to sum it up, um, the telemed platform includes the EMR, um, the consult services through direct Durham and M group, and then the diagnostic piece with, pre with precision. Now, I go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think, I think, I think I know what your, what your question might be. Um, and then I also think we need to talk a little bit about, um, we need to talk a little bit about like the, the dynamic in the space around um, the economics and, and like payers and how that all works. Yeah, um, my first question, just on that precision tool, is it, so in their deck, there was actually a slide and I was a little confused by it because it was like, there was an iPhone scanning something and then there was a tool scanning something. So is it a, is it a separate tool that they use to scan or is it, an, do they actually use your iPhone for it? Uh, my understanding is both. Okay. Yeah, That's so, so I could literally use my iPhone and like, you know, I'm holding my arm up for people listening on the podcast and say the YouTube, but if, if I've got a big cut across my arm, I could literally use their thing and it would be like, oh, this wound is healing or this wound is getting worse. We need to have a telehealth uh, consult or something. I mean, it might not be as simple as that, but yeah, but yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think, I think the idea is that um, it can be used on the phone, but also in certain settings where you could have a device like like in an in an assisted living home or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we're talking about we're talking about older people, and there's some really interesting stats too that we can get into. Um, but but um, so yeah, it's it's either or, and that makes it you know that makes it pretty flexible. Um, yeah, I, I was just I saw that, and I was looking. I was like, oh, a diagnostic on an iPhone. That that's kind of interesting using the. Um, but I guess my first question, you could probably anticipate. Like, look, I don't know this great telehealth. It's huge. It's very interesting, but. You know, my, my question is, why is this um, $200 million micro cap med tech distributions company, like, why are they the ones to win telehealth, right? Like, there are big companies going after it. It generally requires a lot of expertise on, I, we can talk payer stuff, but at, at least on the payer side, but it definitely requires software expertise and stuff. And I was just, I was very, it, it kind of made sense. They launched it in June and that was the height of pandemic, like people are doing, everything's over telehealth, but I was also why they are the ones to win this and what their product really differentiates against a lot of others. Yeah. So, well, first of all, this was in development far before COVID. So um, I, I don't think, I mean, COVID maybe accelerated their plans a little bit, but I mean, they were, they were on this and this was something that they were working on long before that. Um, it's always been part of the strategy is my understanding. Um, I think, I don't think there's another wound care product in telehealth. So what, what they want to do is, is, is build a product that's specific to wound care. Um, and so, 
you know, the question is, is there something else like that out there? I haven't been able to find it. And I'm willing to bet that Ron's involvement with LHC Group allows him to see the picture of how effective something like this could be in a setting like LHC, right? Um, so, you know, a, a few things like one, why even telehealth to begin with, right? So I saw some studies. I mean, they say that um, it can take up to six months for, depending on the type of case, for people to be able to see a doctor um, that, that you know, depending on the case, whatever the condition is. Um, with the platform, they hope that it's like 48 hours. I saw a third-party study that said, um, and the study was in 2017 in Ohio, they, they, I think they surveyed 269 physicians and the mean wait time to see a dermatologist was 56 days. Okay. Um, you know, whether it's 40 or it's 50 or it's even if it's 30, I mean, think about if you had a wound or think if you got a problem, you need to wait a month for somebody to, to address it. It's, it's a significant problem, right? So I think, you know, that sort of speaks to the opportunity. Um, and, you know, we'll have, we'll have to see. I mean, this is one of the pieces of the company that I think is more unpredictable, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it, it offers, I mean, it offers an incredible amount of upside. And at the very least, it provides them a channel to sell more product. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's my view, like through the, through the wound care products. And, um, and I don't think I would be putting words in, in your mouth if I said, you think the opportunity on the the current core business is so large and that this is literally a free option right like you're not you're not baking in anything from the tele the telehealth business when you're looking at this company i'm not no i mean i can i can i can uh you know i guess we'll get into it um but like from a valuation perspective uh i can i think i can paint a valuation framework just around accelerate alone right now uh, well, let's so go. This is all, so everything else is free in that sense. Like if it hits, you know, if it hits, it's great. I mean, um, telemed probably launches by the end of the year. So it's, it's, it's more of a 2022 thing, uh, you know, but it's an interesting part of the story because they've put all these pieces together for a reason, you know, it's taken investment and it's taken a lot of time. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a real purpose for it. Um, you know, before we maybe move on to something else though, we should bring up just, the idea of how they market this platform. And I think that, um, I think that the goal would be to market it to like Medicare Advantage payers, like a Humana or an Aetna or United Health. Um, so there's this dynamic today on the payer side where they can benefit significantly from um, the additional revenue and cost savings by partnering with a company like Sonera. Medicare Advantage, and this is a really important part of the story, I think. So Medicare Advantage generates revenue on a capitated basis. In other words, they're fixed um, prearranged monthly payments that are received by a physician or you know, a hospital per patient enrolled in the plan. So CMS pays, um, pays the payer an amount per beneficiary. Um, and it's based on a fixed rate, which is multiplied times their risk score. Their risk score. So when a beneficiary is diagnosed with an illness, the risk score goes up. Um, and then Medicare Advantage bills CMS more for the beneficiary. Where, where it gets really interesting is if you can diagnose a wound earlier, the risk store still goes up, right? But because you're diagnosing it earlier, um, you're, you're in theory going to heal it faster, right? 
And then therefore there's significant cost savings to be realized. So the combination of those two things um, is what should really bring these payers into the, into the mix, right? And I think if you look at, um, you know, there are other, let's just say there are other companies that have been able to accomplish this already. And, and when that happens, um, there's just a massive re-rating in, in those companies and their ability to penetrate um, the opportunity through a pair. So, Can you give an example of a company that, that's already done this? Um, Semler Scientific. SM, the... SMLR. Yeah, okay. it's like a $750 million company, I think, today. Um, and they have a relationship, uh, I believe, with United Health. Um, and it's not a wound care product. It's not a wound care product, but um, but you're talking about uh, you're talking about a company that does 38 million in revenue, two dollars per share in EPS. Um, it's trading 20 times sales, trading 50 times earnings, um, and and the runway is massive. Um, and, and, you know, and what do they diagnose? Um, it's, it's, it's in a totally different area. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not, oh, no, I, I'm just trying to, to benchmark. Yeah. And think, think I'm not, it. I'm not completely familiar with the product to, 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 to dive into it, but, um, but I've seen, I've seen other companies, I've seen other companies that are able to diagnose something early and, and tie this together. I've, I've seen what's happened to those companies. It's a lot of revenue. It's, it's, a, it's a re-rating because people understand that the runway is there. Um, and it just really changes the optics of the story. So I'm not suggesting, I mean, I don't know. I think the goal, I mean, that's sort of like elephant hunting, right? You know, to, to land a company like that. Oh yeah. And think, oh yeah. And, and I think if they can, it'd be great. But, um, but I think when, you know, for me, you know, you've got this, the, this sort of micro story here around what they're trying to build around these products. And then you, and then I like to marry, you know, macro types of trends, right? So this macro trend around what's going on in the payer landscape is really interesting to me because I think just in general and in, in, in med tech, I mean, anything that allows for diagnosis earlier um, has a pretty good value prop. And if you can marry that to, to economics, you know, it could be pretty powerful. So and I guess my, my last question here, because like I actually I I 100% agree like if you can use this to, to diagnose five days earlier I mean the, the savings to the system are huge it sounds like the the payers get, why why couldn't the payers build this system themselves Bill, what do you mean by how do you define system there the products or or the product the, the telehealth yeah. product in particular I mean I don't know I, I don't you know I'm not sure I know enough about the insurers to know what their desire is to acquire products and in and, and own them I mean that's an interesting you know it's an interesting thing to look into um uh, don't know if I can answer don't know necessarily how to answer that one. Yeah, no, I don't know. Cause it does strike me. Like if you build this and you're successful, I mean, if you could diagnose a wound a day earlier, uh, eventually payers will, will pay out the wazoo for that because literally a day of diagnosis is worth tons. But I, I do wonder like, you know, once it's in their head and it's like, cause it seems like the telehealth aspect is really what's causing the earlier diagnosis. Am mm -hmm. I, am I misthinking about that? No, that's accurate. Yeah. 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 I mean, the yeah, idea, just, the idea is you get people in sooner you, you use the diagnostic tool, right? The diagnostic tool is doing something that doesn't necessarily exist the way that it does today. Yeah. And then, I, and then through that, the, you know, you're improving the outcome of, of, of 
of the situation. So it seems like the diagnostic tool might actually be the moat there, right? Because anyone could theoretically build a telehealth thing, but you can't build the telehealth thing with the diagnostic tool integration. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that they took a very wide range of biomarkers and they, and they whittled it down to, you know, like the top five or 10 and then somehow incorporated it into this, into this tool. So um, it, it's, you know, and again, the people behind that are people that, that have had quite a bit of success in other ventures as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think we missed, um, well, we missed, we missed two parts, two key go parts. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. I'll kind of go back to these two pieces. Um, so so two divisions of the company, one is surgical, which, which, um, which is the Celerate product, right? And then, and then the other division is this wound care division um, where they have uh, a series of products that are called, um, uh, they're called High Coal, which is hydrolyzed collagen, um, Biocose Skin and Wound Cleanser, Biocose Wound Gel. Um, and, you know, this, this part of the business is not, really contributed much to revenue yet. Um, we're talking like a million dollars last year. Um, these products are used in the other side of um, sort of the, the industry. They're used in home health, physician offices, and wound care centers. So they're not in hospitals and they're not in surgeries. Um, this is more of like a chronic wound problem. So pressure ulcers, diabetic ulcers, things that have stalled in the, in the inflammatory phase of the healing process. Um, I didn't know anything about this until like a year ago, but the burden, um, this is like a real big issue that's happening in the United States where we've got an aging population. We've got a rise in diabetes and obesity, and there are like six to 8 million chronic wounds diagnosed each year. So, um, when I first started looking into this, I, I, I just didn't understand the magnitude of the wound space. The wound space is really, really quite large. Um, failure to heal is often associated with the formation of biofilm. And a lot of times when you're looking at a scenario, like you hear this word biofilm. So biofilm um, is a collective group of, of microorganisms that grow on different surfaces. It's like bacteria. Um, like a common example would be dental plaque. Okay. The biofilm state is the fundamental reason that chronic wounds don't heal in a timely manner. So an antimicrobial wound cleanser gel can eliminate the biofilms. It can disrupt that process by which they're formed. And then, and that's really what the Biocos products do. They also reduce odor, pain, and, you know, just generally improve the quality of life for the patients. Um, the gel and the cleanser were both launched late last year. Um, and that market for wound cleanser gels uh, is expected to be like 700 million um, by 2025. So it's a, it's a real market. And, and these products have just sort of gotten clearance. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. But again, this is, this is you know, sort of a free call option. Um, and, and I think that's interesting because they've been building up a little bit of inventory. They've got five people on that side of the business that are out, you know, trying to pave the way, um, for, for opportunities. Um, but admittedly, you know, I think just for a second, let's talk about like what the, what the sort of economics are at play there, because this is different. Um, whereas on the salary side, 
Um, it's very straightforward. It's hospitals. You, you sell it in the hospitals. Surgeons want to use it. Um, on the wound care side, the economic dynamics are different. Um, so wound care, and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this part of the story and to see really what happens long-term. But so wound care has episodic relationships um, throughout the continuum of care. Each setting, I think, is driven by whatever venue that is, they want to get the person out of the facility. Um, because if they're healed or they're on their way to being healed, that's how they get paid. So a hospital, if you look at how they bill under um, DRG, which is like the patient classification system, um, the standardized payments, um, hospitals bill for surgeries, they bill for conditions, and they maximize their income by getting patients out in the shortest duration. They typically don't go beyond 10 days. So if you have a patient with a heart condition, they get sent to a long-term acute care hospital. And then in that case, it's a different category. That venue gets you 28 days. Skilled nursing, similar. You have a certain period of time, co-pays kick in. Um, you know, you deal with Medicaid, you deal with Medicare. Sometimes patients are dual eligible. But basically, the facility gets a certain dollar amount for a period of time. And what that means is they don't necessarily have to give the patient the best treatment especially if they don't think they can heal them in time. So it's all about reimbursement and it's about the suppliers needing to sell cheap products that fit into the model, as opposed to um, just getting people the best outcome, right? So CMS is actually waking up to this and, and the idea that a new system needs to be put into place. Um, they actually have changed some of the rules around it recently um, in 2019. And I'm not sure that they really like were taken into consideration last year because of everything that happened with COVID. Um, but they're incentivizing for the first time early diagnosis and they're incentivizing scoring the patient based on risk and providing dollars to like treat all the conditions. So these products at the moment are lumped into categories that, you know, like a cleanser category where there's much cheaper options for people to buy and it doesn't really work, right? And I think that's not why they've been able to sell a lot of it yet. I mean, it did just get it did just get clearance and sort of launched last year. But um, but until CMS recognizes that it's a superior product, then you know, the, the, again, this part of the business is tough to is tough to model. But I think I think where it's going is that ideally high performance products are going to be utilized. They're going to have a bigger impact, and a more value based arrangement will emerge. And if a payer said, I want to heal these wounds, get away from fee for service, they really can't find many people that can do what Scenario is trying to build. Um, so can I ask a question on these products? So yeah. they are CMS approved right now. They can, they can get paid for them. They're getting paid at, at the lowest levels of cleansers. Uh, are, are there examples of products getting bumped from lowest levels of maybe not lowest, but low levels of payment to higher levels of payment because of, uh, I guess I'll say efficacy. Not that I'm, I'm not an expert, but not that I've been, been not that I've heard of. So okay. I, I can't cite examples of that. Um, I know that the company um, has data that supports an advantage competitively. Um, and I think the question in the short term is, how do you align the reimbursement structure to get the patient the best outcome? Um, and, and actually, I think this kind of feeds back into the telemed platform in a way, because what they want to do with that is collect a lot more data 
And then they want to be able to prove that through the data and the use, there are stronger outcomes. And then that saves more money. So it kind of all feeds itself in a way um, as it comes together. Um, you know, and 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 we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, the Biocos, I think I, you know, I think when we were talking before, you said, well, what is even the competitive like what is the advantage with these with these products? Like it's a it's a cleanser, it's a wound gel, <laughs> you know. Um, but but um they have data that supports they significantly increase the biofilm removal, right? So it's it's to your point, efficacy it works better or it, it does in some of these studies. Um, and their main competition um, with Biocos is, is, is a product called Prontazan from a company called Bibron, which is German. Um, yep. That's a hundred million, it's a hundred million dollar product. Okay. Um, so they already have that efficacy validated. There's several third-party studies. Um, and it's just a question, I think, of figuring out you know, the sweet spot around the reimbursement and the price to, to find where the market is. But, you know, when it goes, it, it could very well go. So. Perfect. perfect. Well, I, yeah. I want to be cognizant of time here. We, we've covered quite a bit from telehealth medicine to, uh, uh, but are, are there any areas that you wish we had hit that you think we should have hit harder or that you wish we had hit that we didn't get to? Yeah. Let me do, let me, let me, I, you know, before this started, I wasn't sure we could go an hour. <laughs> And now and, we're over. And it's funny. I'm like, all right, when are we doing part two? I know one of your podcasts the other day, <laughs> you had, you had, um, was it Jeremy? You've had on like four or five times already. Yeah. Well, we'll just have to do SMTI. <laughs> we'll just go division by division. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, there's two, there's, there's two other pieces I think we should touch on real quick. And, and so one is um, they kind of quietly disclosed this relationship with Cook Biotech um, a few months ago yep. and, um, and, and Cook Biotech um, has brought three new products into their portfolio. And these are really more interesting products, in my opinion, than like the wound care products, because these are, these are really like advanced, um, tissue repair products. Um, so, you know, the first one is, is called Fortify Tissue Repair Graft. It's a freeze-dried multi-layer sheet that, um, reinforces soft tissue. There's an extracellular matrix, which again, advanced wound care device, it can fill irregular shapes and, and depths. Both of those products already 510K cleared, okay? And then, and then the third product um, is, a, is a sheet of amnion tissue that is intended for wound covering. It's a barrier that doesn't, that doesn't need clearance. Um, so all three of these are kind of ready to go, right? Yep. And I think they're gonna flow right through the same, the same channel. There hasn't been any press releases about it, it's been disclosed. Um, my hunch is that they're aware of the opportunity and they kind of want to keep it a little quiet. I mean, we'll see. But again, a lot of upside from these products. What is interesting about Cook is that the Fortify products both appear to be newer versions of, um, of, an, of, a, of a previous product that was called, that's called Oasis um, and that's been distributed by Smith & Nephew in the past. And mm -hmm. that product, and this product goes back like, like 10 or 20 years, but those products, um, when HealthPoint was bought out in 2012, they were thought to be doing like 30 million from this one product. Um, and, and this is sort of the next gen perhaps. So the takeaway is, you know, you got a more advanced product. Um, you got, you got the same salespeople, right. From, from 10 years ago who know how to sell it. Um, and it's quite conceivable that there could be 
you know, quick expansion into the market. Um, so I think that's interesting. We could talk a lot about Cook. I know we don't have time. Cook's, Cook's a, a, a really interesting private company that's developed a lot of um, kind of like Rochelle, it's developed real products in the past. Um, so that that relationship, you know, in terms of feeding kind of the R&D funnel is pretty interesting. Um, and then, you know, I guess the last thing to touch on is do we want to talk about valuation for a minute? Yeah, it, let, let's do valuation real quick. And let, let me ask one question. I think you touched on this earlier, but they, they did yeah. do a big capital raise in February, right? Uh, yeah. it, it, 25 million, you know, this is a $200 million uh, market cap company. So 25 million raise is pretty big. And I, I guess the two things were, I, the part I think you touched on was 25 million, $200 million company. What are they going to do with that cash? And then the second part, you know, I look at that and I get it's a small liquid company with uh, a bit with a big concentrated position, but you know, the stock was 20, it was 41 the day before they, they did it. And I think they issued at 25 and I look at that. I'm like, Oh man, that's a, that's a pretty aggressive issuance when you didn't have a, it didn't seem like you had immediate use for the proceeds. So let, let's quickly wrap up and we'll see if we can keep it under five minutes, like maybe valuation and what you think of that capital raise. Yeah. So well, I wasn't thrilled with that, with, with the pricing of the, of the capital raise. I mean, I, I think investors, I've been, uh, you know, I've been involved for a while and, and I think investors understood that there was a need for capital. Um, and, and the stock started trading really kind of funny, you know, early in the year, um, as if some people knew, I, I don't know. I mean, it got hit pretty hard into it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the pricing was pretty lousy. Um, I, you know, Canners are typically a pretty good bank, so I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I've talked to people that participated in the deal, and and you know the the, the story is that the deal was well subscribed, and um, I I don't know because I haven't talked to Canner and I have much background on on how that all played out. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I mean, we've all seen it before, right? Microcap where where you know there's a pretty significant haircut. I mean, for me, I've seen it in, in mega caps, not not this big yeah. a haircut, but I've seen like, hey, we're issuing at a 15 percent discount and there's no need for the person to like, what are you guys doing? Are you kidding me? Right. So, yeah. yeah but you know what? The funny thing is, like, I mean, liquidity has been insane the past the past six, nine months. Right. So I've seen companies do amazing, like at the market deals, you know, are close to it. Um, I mean, look, like I think in this case, I just got to look forward and I got to try and figure out what, like the way I look at it is what do I think is going to happen over the next sort of, you know, this year, next year, and then, and then talk about valuation a little bit and figure out, you know, what the yeah, stock uh, could be Let's worth. go to valuation. Yeah. I, I just had to ask on the, yeah. on the equity race, because anybody who pulls up and filing that that's going to be the first, the first thing they think like what happened here, you know? Yeah. Right. So, um, all right. So yeah, I know we're running long, but let's, let's dive through this for a couple minutes. So, um, so let's just talk about comps first. So HealthPoint was um, was founded in the '90s. It was uh, acquired in 2012 by Smith and Nephew for four and a half times sales. Okay, they were growing 20 percent, um, and their guidance at the time was like mid-teens. So not very sexy, but four and a half times sales. And when was the acquisition? 2012. 2012. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, IART acquired a company called Acel last year. Um, that actually sells a product um, that's kind of in the accelerate space. Um, a sells doing uh, they paid three hundred million plus one hundred million in earnouts, um, and they generated one hundred million in revenue. They were growing thirteen percent. So okay. again, four times sales, 
low double digits, lower margins, you know, um, there, there was uh, a company called KCI acquired LifeCell for 1.7 billion. This goes back a little ways, but it's, it's 2008. LifeCell was growing 35% and that multiple was seven and a half times. And then interestingly, KCI sold LifeCell to Allergan in 2017 um, for 3 billion. Um, and they had 450 million in revenue. They weren't, they didn't disclose growth rate. Margins were high. Again, that one was probably like seven times sales, 30 times earnings. Um, and then what another one that I'll throw into the ring is that there's a company called, um, well, there's a public company called or- Organogenesis that is publicly traded right now. It's had a great run recently. Um, that trades seven times sales and they do 30% growth. And then there's a company in Australia called NextCare. It is a direct comparable, small. Um, they grew revenue in the fourth quarter by 75%. Their margins are in the mid 80s. So it's kind of what we're thinking is going to happen here. Um, that company trades at $130 million market cap, 35 times sales. Okay. Um, so look, I'm not suggesting this thing trades 35 times sales, but I think the floor through the MA activity is somewhere in the like five to six times sales for a lower growth company. And in this case, you know, with the predictability of Celerate, I mean, they're growing, they're growing 40% a quarter. Um, you know, if you take out the COVID quarter last year, they're growing 40%. If you think about what they can do with the added hospitals, I mean, you know, my baseline's 50. I mean, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 100. We'll have to see. We don't know. They don't provide guidance. Um, you know, and that's just on the one product. So from a valuation perspective, I mean, could this trade 10 times sales, 20 times sales? Yeah, it certainly could. They've got 90% margins. I think if they get to 30 million, 45 million, you know, the 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 cash flow is going to build up very quickly. Um, and at the moment, yeah, I mean, depending on how you think it's valued right now, I mean, I, look, I think they did 15 last year. I think they could do 30 this year. Yep. You know, that that puts it at seven times. That puts it at seven times sales for uh, you know forward revenue. Um, you know, and that's before you factor in any value for any of the other products, right? That's strictly on salary. So it's it's admittedly not easy to model. It's a higher multiple company because of the growth. But I think, you know, what I've found is that the company, look, if you can grow 100%, I, the, the multiples get get really quite silly, right? Um, and I think that as a microcap investor, I've tried to find more of these stories where it's, you know, a 50 to 100% grower as opposed to like a, a 15, 20, 25%, you know, because I think it's, it's pretty it, compelling. It's an interesting thing about growth. Like if you're growing 10 to 20%, yeah, look, every company would prefer to grow faster, right? But 10 to 20% is nice, but it, there can be a lot of issues. If you're growing over 50%, it's unless you are literally taking a dollar bill and selling it for 95 cents, and I don't mean you're selling at negative operating margin. I mean, you're literally handing away dollar bills for 95 cents. Once you're over 50%, you're almost always creating huge amounts of value and stuff. And right. obviously the question is, is it sustainable? How long can you do the 50% all that? But yeah, it, it, it once you start getting over 50%, you're talking about kind of just a different breed. I mean, for me, I think the runway, you know, and again, this kind of sums it up. It's like one predictable product, right? You've got as many as 
six other products that can generate revenue over the next 12 months. Okay. The one predictable product has a very clear runway. Um, if you just want to extrapolate the hospital count growth, you know, maybe it doubles, right? Um, I think the hospital count doubled, the penetration rate could double. It's, it's really hard to figure out, but it could be, it could be very explosive. Um, and the, the runway isn't for one year there. I mean, there's 12,000 hospitals and ambulatory centers for Celerate to possibly sell into. They've got 300 they actually sold into, you know, like you said, 291. So, so. If, if I was just to wrap this valuation segment up, would I be putting words in your mouth if I said, all right, this year you think the company could, sometime in the next 12 months, you think they could approach a $30 million annual revenue run rate. You could slap a 10 multiple on that and that would get you to approaching a $50 stock. I'll just use super rough numbers. But you think, so that, that's kind of your short-term valuation, but longer term, you think there's such a big runway and so many different interesting irons in the fire that, and the management team, especially, you're, you're willing to back and trust. You think you're actually paying for much more than that. Am, am I putting words in your mouth or would you push back on any of that? No, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, short term, yeah, it, it, it's $28 today. Could it be 50 this year? Yeah, I think I think if they show that the growth is there, absolutely. Um, and then and then I think if you get any contribution from the new products, yeah, you just you're starting to model new revenue streams that that could really keep it going for quite a while. And 50 is funny because you said the stock started trading funny. I think the, at the beginning of the year, the stock was 50 and we're talking yeah. today 28. So we're kind of just talking a round trip, but it, it would be a, a nice round trip from this price. Anyway, yeah. uh, Neil, I think your kids are about to get home. I, I've got to <laughs> run. We've, we've run long, but yeah. looking forward to having you on again to discuss the next microcap. Uh, this was super interesting. I encourage all uh, all the listeners, I'll put Neil's Twitter profile on there that you can check him out there. Encourage everyone to go check out SMTI's deck. Word of warning, don't go look at the last three uh, <laughs> last three slides because you're going to see some diabetic wound ulcers that you're not going to be able to forget. But Neil, thanks for coming on and we'll chat soon, buddy. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.